There is nothing quite like war for driving innovation. To be clear, this is not an argument that we should have more of them. Among the many transformative effects of Russia's assault on Ukraine last February has been an overdue detachment on Europe's part from Russian gas and oil. A little over a year ago, Germany, to name one country, got half its gas and a third of its oil from Russia. It now gets none, and yet Germany's lights have stayed on. It has been a bracing reminder of the extent to which climate and security are overlapping issues, and the degree to which switching to cleaner energy has become a national security imperative. It is a potential colossal double win, addressing climate change while ceasing to enrich some of the world's less agreeable regimes. An ironic subplot of this is the casting of militaries, entities whose primary role is destructive, as key participants in the process of constructing climate solutions. Militaries are adapting to the consequence of a changing climate and addressing their own significant contributions to climate change. It is very much a charge they can be leading. The idea may not be as deranged as it might seem. The essentially utilitarian mentality of militaries has previously made them great catalyzers of progress in other areas. The US military, for example, was racially desegregated in 1948, decades before much of the actual US. What role can militaries play in combating climate change? Could militaries do more to make the case to conservative climate sceptics? And have we at last understood that climate action and national security are the same thing? This is The Foreign Desk. Bringing the message from a security angle makes other people listen. In the first years when we started, it was kind of a left-wing topic. It was a Green Party topic. And now it's becoming also a Liberal Party topic. So they all start to realize that it affects every aspect of their agenda and it really helps to bridge that gap if somebody like me or from the economic sector, for instance, start making that case. It's a pity to see that we needed a war to discover that, first of all, we are completely dependent on fossil fuels, fossil energy that is mainly provided in by dictatorships, by, by countries where... Democracy and human rights means nothing. But I'm sure that the energy transition will now go much, much faster. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll speak to Luxembourg's Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister and the former Chief of the Netherlands Armed Forces. But joining me first from Montreal is Pauline Boudou, a climate and Arctic security expert and senior fellow at the Canadian think tank Arctic 360. Uh, Pauline, first of all, you've written previously about the idea of climate change as a threat multiplier. What did you mean by that? Yes, so the threat multiplier concept, it's uh, actually a term that captures the relation between climate change and conflict or insecurity uh, writ large. So how the physical impacts of climate change interact with and have the potential to exacerbate uh, pre-existing threats or drivers of instability at the local level and that eventually contribute to security risks. So it's actually a term that was coined in 2007 by the U.S. Center for Naval Analysis Military Advisory Board. It has since then been progressively adopted by 
policymakers and military circles, uh, first in the US and then abroad. It's now being used in, in NATO and UN documents, for example, and it has contributed in really shaping the way that people understand the security implications of climate change and think about these risks. And so by highlighting their implications for the military, it has also really led the defense communities to get interested in the climate topic. Because one of the things we're interested in exploring in this episode is the possibly counterintuitive idea that it might be militaries who are further out in front uh, than perhaps most organisations and most entities where climate change is concerned. Has that been your experience? Do you think there has been a, a huge shift or a huge leap forward in the way that militaries around the world are thinking about this? It's interesting because the impacts of climate change on security have been progressively influencing the thinking of the defense community. I mean, their operations are at the forefront of climate impacts, especially as far as the the Navy is concerned. And so the U.S. Department of Defense uh, has really been leading on this since uh, this report by integrating climate change in its strategic thinking and operational planning, including in, in many of its major like risk assessment documents for national security. Now I think the fact that NATO has recently been boosting its political efforts and its communication and taking the lead on these topics on climate security, also at a time when the role of NATO is much more central in the the current strategic context. I mean, this has also participated in largely drawing global attention and increasing awareness on this nexus in, in the past year or so. In a short period of time since 2021, NATO has released an ambitious climate and security action plan. It has integrated climate change as a a defining challenge of our times in its new strategic concept last June, that the words that it used uh, to define climate change. And there is also a new NATO Center of Excellence on climate change and security that's opening in Montreal this year. Uh, So we can really see that climate change has gone from a small piece of the U.S. security agenda at the time to really gaining considerable traction at the international level. What's your sense of where the greatest interest for militaries is in climate change? Is it the idea that climate change may itself be a promoter or catalyzer of conflict or the idea that they are going to have to get used to operating in environments which have been radically altered by climate change? I mean, it's both. And it's even like three-legged, if I may. So you have all this kind of technology innovation uh, that is three-legged when it comes to military efforts. You have the need to increase awareness of climate impacts in the theaters in which the military operates, the need to adapt to these physical impacts of climate change, but also since the military is one of the largest energy users, you have also the need to advance energy efficiency and energy resiliency. I mean, to try to minimize the footprint of of the military um, as part of its operations, but also to boost its military effectiveness. But are we also starting to see, I mean, I know the lead times on these things are long, but innovations in military technology specifically geared towards adapting to climate change, whether it is tanks that run on hybrid energy rather than petrol or different kind of vehicles adapting to a changing environment like the Arctic, for example. Yes. So 
On the technology part at large, um, yes, it's a central part of military advances and of the modernization of armies. It has always been and defense departments as well as the broader intelligence and national security communities have always been drivers of technological innovation. We know that the creation of the internet and the GPS, for example, emerged from defense activities. So now we're seeing the military being really at the forefront in partnership with the industry sector of developing climate risks analytics to allow for better climate predictions. And so when it comes to the Arctic, yes, there have really been adaptation efforts at both the strategic and the, the operational levels. So at the strategic level, it's really in response to the increased militarization of the Russian Arctic in recent years, because Moscow wants to securitize its key economic assets and in its infrastructure that allows it to exploit the energy resources in the region, uh, which has in turn forced Western Arctic nations to increase their presence and their defense capabilities in the region. So you have several nations that have released or updated their Arctic strategies, and there has also been an intensification of Arctic military exercises on both sides. And then at the operational level, Arctic nations are also looking at ways to adapt their forces to increasingly challenging conditions in the Arctic uh, due to more frequent and intense storms, but also thawing permafrost that is challenging military infrastructures, surveillance bases that are increasingly difficult to navigate because of this, but also because of increasing risks of floodings, uh, cracking runways. And so all of this is really affecting operational readiness. So in the Arctic too, you have seen technology innovation and efforts from the military to make infrastructure and equipment more climate resilient. I can cite, for example, like the design of military vehicles, uh, such as the cold weather all-terrain vehicles that have been selected by the US Army to operate in these increasingly extreme conditions. Pauline, thank you. That was Pauline Boudou. You are listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Soldiers and environmental campaigners may seem unlikely allies in any number of respects, but while their reasons and their motives may be different, both have a fundamental concern with climate change and decreasing dependence on energy imported from unfriendly countries. Our next guest is the former Dutch General Tom Middendorp, now Chairman of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. General Middendorp formerly served as Chief of Defence of the Armed Forces of the Netherlands from 2012 to 2017. I began by asking General Middendorp to explain the role of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Well, it's a network. It's a global network of experts, senior leaders like me, from all over the world. We have experts from 40 countries in all continents, which provides a very broad view on the current state of affairs. How is climate change affecting our security at this moment? They give a lot of practical insights and they feed that to a consortium of four research institutes. And also there a new network is establishing with 16 other research institutes linking up with them. So there is also kind of a scientific base building up. And together, what we did last few years is building awareness because most people were just not aware that there is this link between climate and security. So we tried to raise that awareness and that's why we came here to the Munich Security Conference 
to get this on the agenda. And when the first time I came here three years ago, it was the first time ever in their history that they talked about climate and climate change. And I was in a panel with John Kerry and Ban Ki-moon and Greenpeace and others. And then it started to get rolling. And we used our scientific reports to feed NATO, EU, UN, but also nations with the awareness that there is a huge security dimension to climate change. And I'm very glad to see that many of these institutions are now picking that up. Is at least some minor silver lining that Europe has learned this year if learned the hard way that clean energy or cleaner energy actually is a national security imperative. Yeah, I think Europe has learned many lessons. I hope they have learned it. At least they have identified many lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I think they, they are starting to realize now that in this interdependent world, dependencies can also become instruments of war, as we saw with the Nord Stream pipeline, which immediately affects our energy security. And that also kind of accelerated the whole energy transition because we want to become more autonomous in our energy supply system. So, yes, I think that lesson is being learned now and we see the whole process speeding up at this moment. But I think we can also say that they learned that climate change is about more than just an environmental issue. It's also about security. It's a matter of national security. It's also about societal security. It's also about economic security in many aspects. So climate change has kind of a disrupting effect on societies, affecting all kinds of supply chains that we have. So it needs a much more comprehensive approach, which is now starting to build up. It's easy enough to see, I think, when you think about it, how and why militaries would be out in front of addressing this. And there are obviously initiatives which you'll be aware of, like NATO having this idea of being net zero by 2050. But I was wondering if you think militaries could play more of a role, especially current and former military personnel could play more of a role in making the case that climate change is a real thing. Because I think there's a big overlap between the kind of conservative people who tend to admire and respect the military and the kind of conservative people who aren't actually all that convinced about climate change. I can see you nodding. But is that something that current and former senior military could be doing more of? I do it every day. <laughs> yeah, just by bringing the message from a different angle, by bringing the message from a security angle, makes other people listen. In the first years when we started, it was kind of a left-wing topic. It was a Green Party topic. And now it's becoming also a Liberal Party topic. In my own government, all parties have big climate parts in their agendas now. Uh, so they all start to realize that it affects every aspect of their agenda. And it really helps to bridge that gap if somebody like me, or from the economic sector, for instance, start making that case. You have to make that case by making the impact being felt. Because for many people, climate change is something very far away, very complex, and what can I do about it? But if you bring it very close, if you show it will affect you in this, this, and this way, make it very practical, then people start to wake up, and then they start to realize that they need to do something about it. And that's what we try to do. How are you seeing militaries, especially NATO militaries, beginning to adapt to it? Is it making a difference in terms of the kind of new things that they're attempting to develop or the new equipment they're thinking of buying? Is, is it becoming a factor in, in defense procurement? It differs per country. In the US, with the new Biden administration, they made a really quick turn. Of course, the Pentagon was already for a long time working on this topic, but now they can speed up things. In the UK, after the climate summit in Wales, also things started speeding up. 
in France, Germany, but it differs per country. Many of the more Eastern member states, they have other priorities. But I think the military can play a lot of roles. They can help on the forecasting side. We have huge intelligence organizations. And once you recognize climate change as a root cause of conflict, then why not integrate that in your intelligence assessments of all these fragile regions around us? And that helps to build understanding, that helps to provide early warning against the effects of climate change. And then you can become more proactive in your policies. So that would be one element. Another element would, of course, be the mitigation. The military is the largest polluter of any country. (laughs) So we also have a responsibility to take. And I think it's important there that we don't see it as an obligation because then you have to enforce it and people are not very enthusiastic about that. It's important to, to see it as an opportunity. I think green technologies can serve many purposes Mm. and they can also help make militaries more self-sufficient. They can help to boost operational effectiveness because you don't need to supply units all the time. If they can become more self-sufficient, you can reduce heat and noise signatures of vehicles. So there are different levels of purposes here that can also help the military more operationally. And another area, if I may, is adaptation, the adaptation Mm -hmm. side. I think internally they need to adapt to make sure that their military, their equipment is able to operate in any climate circumstance. So that will create new kinds of requirements. They have to operate in humanitarian assistance, disaster relief missions increasingly, more and more. So that will become a, a larger task. And I think they can do a lot in helping these fragile countries around us, this whole belt of instability around Europe, to build resilience there. And that's more conflict prevention by partnering with those countries, by helping helping them to address the effects of climate change. Do you think there is also a possible scenario whereby more widespread clean energy might in itself reduce conflict? My vague thought on this is that I find it very hard to imagine anybody bothering to blow up a wind farm. Yeah, in that respect also, but also in in the aspect that if you can become more self-sufficient in many aspects, then these dependencies become uh, less and less, and that takes away the geopolitical competition that's now increasing. Uh, Because climate change, you cannot look at climate change as a sole topic. You have to look at it in the context of a doubling world population this century and a diminishing level of resources. Uh, So the gap between demand and supply is becoming very large. And to me, that's the challenge of this century. How are we going to bridge that gap? And climate change speeds up that process. And the current geopolitical situation, we are moving towards a more fragmented world, means that it becomes harder and harder to find global solutions for that. And these four trends kind of shape our futures and also shape the security environment. So you have to look at climate change in that context and To bridge that gap, that growing gap between global demand and supply, you cannot bridge that by producing more and more in the way we are currently doing, because that's all in in this industrial way. We are just using resources and turning them into waste. Uh, So we have to move towards a more circular economy from uh, an industrial economy. And by doing that, and I think the military can speed up that process, can be that platform for innovation, we reduce our dependencies on these scarce resources and we take away some of these roots of conflicts, future conflicts, because climate change will affect our security in many ways. It changes the geopolitical environment. We face the Arctic area opening up, 
the fossil fuel countries, economies uh, <laughs> being affected. So geopolitically, but also more regionally, it really disrupts whole societies because it takes away the perspective of people. If you look at Northern Africa, these people, catalysts dying, herders have to move away, large migration flows. So there's a lot of internal friction building up there. This is a recipe for disaster. So also operationally, it brings a lot of change. And also on a tactical level, I think it brings a lot of new opportunities. So on all levels, it will affect security. That was General Tom Middendorp, Chairman of the International Military Council on Climate and Security and former Chief of the Armed Forces of the Netherlands, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's show, we hear from Francois Bausch, Luxembourg's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Defence, and almost by way of personifying the premise of this episode, the parliamentary leader of Luxembourg's Green Party. I began by asking about something Mr Bausch said in November last year, namely that Russia is paying a very high price for its invasion of Ukraine as a result of Western sanctions. But I wondered whether Russia, in fact, calculates the things differently to everyone else. No, I was still uh, keeping my opinion that I expressed in, in, in November. Uh, the price that Russia has to pay is still very high. If you look at the losses, the losses on the battlefield, but also inside of the Russian society, I'm really sure that the price is enormously high. The problem is that with all the Russian propaganda that we can hear uh, in Europe, in the rest of the world, We don't have a clear picture of uh, what is really happening inside of the Russian society. We have no other choice than continue like this and supporting Ukraine because it's unacceptable. And I cannot imagine even that Russia should really uh, win this war. It's it's the bad word. Keep the momentum and, and keep this territory that they have occupied since now one year. Do you get a sense that there's any timescale placed on this? When, when In the bilaterals you've been having, the people you've been talking to, is there any optimism at all that this is going to end sooner rather than later? No, unfortunately, at the moment, you have not called it optimism. You have conviction. Everybody is convinced that you have to keep the support and, and the solidarity inside of NATO members, even outside of NATO members, because you have also here representatives from Australia, from Japan, everybody is true and believes that we must really push back this aggression and and show the world that in the 21st century, aggressions like this, they don't worth the price. I did notice that you were attending a discussion dinner here this weekend with the the possibly optimistic title of Breaking the Vicious Circle, Mapping Views on Exit Strategies for a Post-Putin Russia, uh, which obviously we're not anywhere near yet. But do you have a a view or an idea of what that should look like? That's difficult to to say because the problem is that at the moment I don't see any... I don't think that with Putin himself there can be uh, found a solution to end uh, this conflict. Because he is so much deep already inside of the problem and of what they did in the last year. So it will be very, very complicated uh, to see an outcome simply by going on the negotiation table and discussing with Mr. Putin. But the problem is who is behind? What is the real situation of power inside the Kremlin, inside the Russian society, inside of the intellectuals in Russia? We don't have a clear picture. We only see uh, what we hear from 
opposition people uh, that are outside or that are already in exile. But is this real or is this not real? Difficult to say. So the main thing is to, via supporting the, uh, Ukraine, that the Ukrainians themselves can defend themselves and really push the Russians back. And that means that that puts the pressure on no matter who is behind also Putin inside uh, the power, that they have to come back with serious discussions on the negotiation table. There's one aspect of the way Europe has responded to this, which I know is of particular interest to your party, and this has been a really extraordinarily swift pivot away from being reliant on Russian energy and starting to think and talk seriously about cleaner energy and about how that might work and the infrastructure and the networks that might be needed to make that a reality, which I'm sure you welcome as good news. But is there any amount of frustration on your part that it it takes this crisis for that to happen? Because Europe has this year demonstrated that you could have done this all along. Absolutely. And, and it's a pity to see that we needed a war to discover that, first of all, we, we are completely dependent on fossil fuels, fossil energy that is mainly provided uh, in by dictatorships, by countries where democracy and human rights means nothing. A war can never be positive. That's clear. The f positive side effect that we have of this war is that now in some way propels really in a completely different energy future. If you look at the discussions that you have now since three or four months on hydrogen, the, the hydrogen technologies, they are existing already for years. Now uh, we have discovered them. So now big industry sectors, so steel industry, the construction sector, whatever, everybody is discussing on using more hydrogen instead of natural gas, for example. So really, it's a pity that we that this war had to come to the demonstrate where our problems are. But you are right. I'm sure that the energy transition will now go much, much uh, faster than uh, somebody could had imagined two years ago, for example. And that's good news. It's good news because that means also that we take away to put in an important tool that he thought have to have to win this war. Because uh, if he sees and if he feels that yeah, the energy pressure that he put it on uh, on Europe, on the rest of the world, does not function anymore, so then, then it, it will become very problematic for him. Because what we discover already now is that the Russian economy represents, in fact, nothing in the world. So they have the GDP of Spain, and now we see the result. In, in autumn, everybody thought that we will go directly in an economic crisis with minus GDP, but it will not happen. We will have a positive GDP this year in, in the average of the European Union. And, and that's, in fact, good news. So, so we show, with this, we show Putin that um, the economic pressure, the energy pressure does not function. It is amazing to think that Vladimir Putin, of all people, has been such an effective advocate for NATO and for Europe's green parties. <laughs> From a cynical point of view, <laughs> you can look at it like this, but uh, the human tragedy, is, it's not a discussion. So, but, but you're right, the side effect, uh, the collateral effect is this. It's clear. We have spoken before about the, the concerns that European governments may have had about keeping European public opinion on board with this if and when it started to necessitate actual meaningful economic hardship or just being, frankly, cold over winter. And so far, Touchwood Europe appears to have got out the other side of that winter instead. 
in Luxembourg in particular, as a microcosm of that, there is a general election this year. Do, do you think this is going to be any kind of election issue at all? Is there any meaningful dispute within Luxembourgeois politics about this? It will be an issue, but I think that the, at the moment the population stands uh, largely behind what the government is doing. And the, the outcome and, and how long that we could keep this solidarity and this, this momentum is as long as we uh, can manage the energy crisis in a positive way and also keep away uh, Luxembourg from an, a minus economic development and then having also social collateral damage, for example. That's really the questions that will dominate election campaign, for my opinion. So, so the outcome, the crisis, the, the war, everything plays a role, but mainly not directly, but more indirect. So, like I said, fiscal policy, social policy, energy policy, and always linked directly to the crisis. For example, inflation. We had last year high inflation. We managed to really break down the inflation. We have now in Luxembourg the lowest inflation rate in, in the whole European Union. And if we can keep this, that's what the population is interested in, then you can really keep out the war itself from the election campaign. That was Francois Bausch, Luxembourg's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Defence, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced and edited by Emma Searle, Christy O'Grady, David Stevens, and Callum McLean. Steph Chungu and Tamsin Howard edited this week's Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at esatmonocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time time goodbye